0: to the World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR and this week we are going to talk about Finnish and Swedish security policies. So far, neither Sweden nor Finland is a member of NATO. But with the war in Ukraine, this might be about to change. And we want to talk about the chances of these two countries joining NATO, what the implications for them are, what it means for the relationship with Russia and the future of the West. And I have an all-star cast to help us make sense of this. I'm very happy to welcome two of ECFR's board and council members. First up, we have Carl Bildt, who is uh, co-chair of ECFR, former prime minister and former foreign minister of Sweden, and also uh, joining us from Florence with COVID, unfortunately. We have Alexander Stubb, who is currently the director of the School of Transnational Governance at the European University Institute in Florence, but before that, sir as Prime Minister, Finance Minister, Foreign Minister, Trade, and Europe Minister of Finland. Um, and I could mention many other parts of his CV if uh, if only we had more than half an hour for this um for this call. Thank you very much, both of you, for joining. Let's start with this this question about NATO membership. And I think the a lot of the running has been made by the Finns rather than the Swedes in in terms of uh, uh this debate. So Alex, maybe you can. Tell us what's happening. The Finnish parliament has opened a debate on on NATO membership. How likely do you think it is that, that Finland will become a member of NATO and, and how would that happen?
1: First of all, Mark, thanks for uh, having me. and sorry for a slightly rough voice. Uh, I think it's very likely. And I guess this time around, the roles are a little bit reversed because when we joined the European Union, the Swedes took the lead and we followed. And this time around, we're taking the lead and the uh, Swedes are following. I, I think the decision on Finnish NATO membership was basically taken on the 24th of February when Russia and Putin attacked Ukraine. That's when our opinion polls shifted radically from 50 against, 20 in favor, to now 68 in favor, 12 against. And when opinion polls shift like that, the political mood shifts as well. So we're on our way. And I, I think an application is is weeks
0: away, the latest in the month of May. So Carl, what's the, the situation in Sweden um, Alex mentioned that Sweden was was leading the way on EU membership, but NATO has been more divisive in Sweden. One of your main excuses for not joining was not to put the Finns in an awkward position during the, the Cold War. But now the Finns seem to be removing that posi- that excuse for you.
2: Well, I wouldn't call it an excuse, Mark, because, I mean, we go back to when the Atlantic Alliance was uh, formed in the late 1940s. We shouldn't forget that the position of Finland was far from secure. It was fairly fragile. They had sort of two painful wars with the Soviet Union. They had an Allied Control Commission under Soviet leadership sitting in Helsinki. They had a Soviet military base immediately to the west of the country. They had been forced into a treaty with uh, the Soviet Union, with all military clauses, they had severe restrictions on their military forces. It was a different world. So, for Sweden, had we joined the Atlantic Alliance together with the Norwegians and the Danes? First, we discussed the option of a Nordic Defence Alliance. The fear was that that would increase Soviet Stalin's pressure on Finland and take Finland the same way Czechoslovakia in 1948. And even if that was a very long time ago. Uh, I think that remained the core reason all through the Cold War decades why, for Sweden, the freedom of staying outside of NATO was the appropriate security policy. Uh, Then, of course, uh, things got much better for Finland, for everyone. The Soviet Union collapsed, and that made it possible for both of us to take the steps towards the European Union. As Alex said, uh, Sweden took the lead at the time. Uh, Finland followed fairly rapidly after, but we joined at exactly the same time. Now we are at the second Teutonic shift in Europe with uh, Russia turning overtly aggressive in a way that can only compared with Hitler, 1939. And then Finland has somewhat more security in its DNA for all sorts of historical reasons that are fairly obvious and geographical reasons, by the way. So it's fairly natural that Finland is taking the lead. But I mean, the political process is going forward in Sweden as well. And we will join at the same time.
0: And what are the polls like in Sweden? Because Alex mentioned some really dramatic changes in Finland.
2: It's roughly the same. But the most important thing is not the polls. The, the important thing is a shift among sort of the uh, political and security elites. It's been primarily, uh, we, we now have a majority parliament in favour of an application, but it's been a question for the Social Democratic Party to uh, sort out its internal convul, well, not quite convulsions, but its internal uh, ghosts, I could say over the issue and that process is ongoing
1: and i guess with the opinion polls if i could still add i I think when the finnish parliament the prime minister and the president will come out with their views on nato membership then i think the opinion polls are going to be north of 80 percent in in finland and for us it's been very much as carl said about security not at all about ideology and and i I don't think carl can say this but as a finn i can say I think the Social Democrats in Sweden, they've always been opposed to NATO membership for fairly ideological reasons. So it's a little bit like changing religion in, in that sense in, for some people in Sweden. For us, it's but more sort of realpolitik. And we're usually quite quick to, to change tack when, when history calls
0: upon us. And what's actually going to happen then? So I think your president said that you don't need to have a referendum if if there's a kind of large majority in the polls in favour of it. But what what happens between now and Finland officially becoming a member of NATO? Yeah, the the, the process is actually quite straightforward, and I, I think it's
1: very good that we don't have a referendum because that would basically be a security risk in in today's. A uh, world of unpeace where everything can be weaponized. I've uh, read in Mark Leonard's book about this. So, you know, there'd be a lot of disinformation floating around. So now we have a debate. In, the, the, the government has put forward a white paper on the security situation. And now we have a debate on that white paper. It also goes into the Defense Committee and the Foreign Affairs Committee. But the parliament has also established a sort of interparliamentary uh, working group on uh, the security situation and NATO membership led by the uh, Speaker of the House, Matti Vanhan, who is also our former uh, prime minister. And my prediction is that this group will sort of come out of the closet, if you will a little bit earlier and at a quicker pace than dealing with the white paper. So that's why they will probably recommend to the government and to the president that, OK, it's time to join NATO. They'll do that, uh, I would predict, sometime in the month of May. And then it's actually quite straightforward. The the, the Finnish um, foreign policy government, so that's the president and the government, they will show their intent to want to join to NATO because you don't apply to NATO. You, you show your intent to apply uh, or, or to join. And then uh, hopefully in the summit in Madrid, 29th and 30th of June, uh, NATO will use, uh, say, Article 10 and, and basically invite Finland and Sweden uh, to join NATO. I hope that's
0: how it's going to go. And what, what's the parallel Swedish process going to be, Carl?
2: I think, uh, well, it is a parallel process. It's a different one, slightly. We have a working group now with representatives all of the, all of the political parties that's headed by the foreign minister and the defense minister. And uh, they are, as a matter of fact, they had one of their key meetings today. Uh, They will have their last meeting, I think, around the 13th or or something like that of May. I think you will have an announcement coming out fairly rapidly thereafter from the government. And I think we have a state visit coming in from the Finnish president here uh, on the 17th and 18th of May. And I would expect there to be clarity on the issue before that then where we are lagging behind Finland is that we haven't had that parliamentary process. We need to, in my opinion, to have some sort of parliamentary process following from that. That can be fairly straightforward, but all sorts of issues of democratic legitimacy of the process, that is necessary. So I expect some sort of procedure in parliament after that. And then I think I think we are likely to, as Alex said, show our intent at, uh, at the same time.
0: So you wouldn't need to have a referendum either? No. And does the election, because obviously there are parliamentary elections in September in, in Sweden, is that going to have any effect on this? We do have this democratic
2: thing called elections, and that's in September, rightly. No, I think everyone is keen to have this thing done before that. If the Social Democrats, I'd be highly theoretical, it's not going to happen. If the Social Democrats were going to say no, it would have been a nature election. Yeah, uh, they could probably have lost on that plan, but I think yeah. it would be divisive and bad.
1: There are a couple of other dates, yeah. There are a couple of other dates, Mark, that you might want to look at as well. One is that our prime minister uh, is giving a speech at the so-called Atlantic Society, which is a pro-NATO NGO in Finland, on the third of May. Uh, And I would assume this is just an educated guess that she'll come out with her opinion at that stage. Uh, And I, of course, don't know how they've coordinated with the president, who, by the way, who has COVID as well. So we, we, you know, in Finland, we sympathise with each other. But I, I do think that the date there, around you know, the fifteenth, sixteenth of May, or Norwegian Independence Day, may could could be interesting dates to look at.
2: I agree.
0: I want to talk a bit more about what what will actually be changed by NATO membership, because both of your countries have been quite bound into NATO in 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 sub-membership ways for a long time. But before we do that, you mentioned this gap between intent being declared and NATO actually welcoming you in. There have been a lot of slightly aggressive statements coming out of the Kremlin and, and, and different spokespeople, and people have, have speculated that that Russia might try and use that interim period between the statement of intent and, and your country's actually joining NATO to make mischief. How worried are you about that? What kinds of things do you think might happen well, I don't know, you know, Carl and
1: I are old hogs at this. So we're actually quite relaxed about these kinds of things at the end of the day. Uh, we call it the gray zone or the gray period from the moment of intent to actual membership. Uh, and we expect there to be a combination of hybrid cyber uh, and information threat uh, of sorts. Uh, on the cyber side, you know, we'll probably see attacks as we did during Zelensky's speech in the Finnish parliament, uh, the homepage of the foreign ministry and the, uh, and the Ministry for Foreign Affairs. We'll probably see some violations of uh, airspace. There's going to be a lot of disinformation being floated around. Uh, I used to think that the Russians are really good at disinformation, but nowadays everything that they say, it just sort of bumps up the popularity of NATO. I mean, any little threat that comes, you know, just a opinion polls keep on going up. So there are a variety of different things that, that, that Russia will do. There could be some movement of troops as well. We don't know. But we also have to understand that there's a lot of sort of old information being floated. Just one example is Medvedev saying that, you know, they will move ballistic missiles into the Baltic Sea region. Well, they're already there. So, you know, we, we're quite vigilant on it, but but I think we stay quite calm. Conventional type of uh, action? I don't think so.
2: I agree with that. I'm, I'm fairly relaxed. As um, I said, the Medvedev threat, threat uh, only indicated that Medvedev doesn't know where they have that nuclear weapons. It uh, doesn't surprise. As for conventional forces in our vicinity, uh, some of the units they have in the vicinity, both the Kaliningrad units and units up closer to the Norwegian-Finnish border, they have taken quite a beating in Ukraine and are far from any state in which they can be doing any harm whatsoever. I mean, it's quite spectacular, the beating some of the units have been taking. As for statements coming out of Moscow, there's been far less of that than I expected. I mean, there have been the usual that said the consequences and whatever. Yeah, absolutely. But we're actually not doing this in order to please Moscow, primarily. So the fact that there will come some angry reactions out of Moscow—that's part of the package—and I think people are fairly prepared and, and relaxed about it.
1: Yeah, and I always re- I always uh, recommend people to follow Carl's Twitter feed because, you know, he doesn't only deal with sort of traditional foreign policy issues, but he's able to dig out a lot of really interesting military stuff and. Also, a lot of interesting Russian disinformation. So I get my daily fix nowadays from the Russian talk shows that that, that Carl distributes. And there is this sort of increased level of desperation coming out in the rhetoric. I think the last one was that they will attack NATO and Europe, but there you go.
0: So are you going to tell me now why you think being part of NATO is going to be different? I mean, obviously, it's a huge symbolic change because... The fact that you weren't part of it for the sort of historic reasons that you described earlier, Carl, you know, was, was mm. an important part of of the history and the identity of your countries and had enormous impact during the Cold War. But since the end of the Cold War, Finland and Sweden have been pretty closely bound into a lot of institutions. You're in the EU, so there is already a security guarantee, which you get from at least other EU member states under Article 42.7. What what does change as a result of, of NATO membership?
2: Well, on on forty two seven and the EU, I think that's that's a point that needs to be made. I think EU will be a far more relevant and important security actor, and I'm certainly in favour of that. And I do hope that the Danish referendum on June the 1st, on them lifting their reservation for Denmark taking part in the EU security, that that will be lifted. But in terms of the hard military security, territorial defence, EU has uh, two distinct disadvantages. One necessary, the United States is not member. And the other, rather regrettable, the United Kingdom is not member. And the US and the UK are the two countries that are militarily of the greatest relevance when it comes to augmenting defense efforts in, in, the, in the Nordic area. So the EU will be increasingly important because it's got a far, much broader array of instruments to have uh, to deal with a broader array of threats, than NATO, but NATO will fundamentally be absolutely critical to territorial defense. The actual change that you will see in Northern Europe is that we will be able to integrate planning and preparations in a way we haven't done before. It affects primarily the planning for the defense of the three Baltic states, which is, will be sort of facilitated by the sort of uh, prepared availability of Swedish territory, airspace, and control of the Baltics. Finland is a somewhat different, but affects also the defense of Estonia. And then we have closer coordination will be necessary when it comes to the defense efforts in the northern parts of the Scandinavian Peninsula. We already have, particularly between air forces in, in, in northern Norway, northern Sweden, northern Finland, quite close cooperation, but more will be done and more can be done. So you will see over time uh, substantial military effects.
1: Yeah, and I, I think I, I would agree. And, and I, I think the decision that our defense ministry and our defense forces took in the early 1990s, when they realized that we're not going to join NATO, was to basically integrate our military material, uh, our exercises, so close to NATO that we're basically 99% NATO compatible. So in the Finnish case, we ended up buying, and sorry, Sweden and Grip, and on this, we ended up buying the over 60 F-18s and and now another 64 F-35s. Uh, we have the JASSM defense system that we're using. We do a lot of uh, joint training exercises with Sweden and with NATO. And we've participated in most uh, post-Cold War NATO operations. So, you know, NATO knows what it's getting. And NATO also knows that it's, in the Finnish case, in the land and the air, we're very strong. Uh, Swedes are extremely strong in the air uh, and on the sea. Uh, on the land in Finland, you know, we have uh, obviously still obligatory military service, 900,000 reserves, including yours truly as a Lance Corporal, so basically gun, gun fodder. Uh, and, and then uh, we have 280,000 men and women that can be mobilized within a matter of days. And the fact that we're so closely integrated with the Swedish system uh, makes NATO understand that there's a tremendous value added for the security in, in our region, Northeastern uh, Europe, Baltic states, Baltic Sea, and Nordic countries.
0: And what happens to because EU NATO relations has become a, a kind of joke because uh, almost uh, if it wasn't so sad because uh, we've been talking about it for so long, there's so many crazy barriers towards. Largely the same group of countries talking to itself and working out how to how to coordinate their activities. If the Danes do vote yes, though, their situation looks a bit less certain than the certainty that both of you have about about your respective countries joining NATO. Um, what possibilities do you think that opens up for a reset in the EU NATO relationship? The fact that there's a will be an even more direct overlap between the countries in both.
2: Well, I think first, is it's going to be a stronger NATO. I mean, the democratic European credentials of NATO will decrease as a function of this. And the EU will, or NATO will clearly be the organization for territorial defense of Europe. But at the same time, uh, EU has shown some remarkable strength in this crisis as well, although slightly different. And has, as I said, sort of a broad array of policies covering a broad array of threats and challenges. And I think it would be natural to have a discussion on how to coordinate these efforts better. And you will have uh, at least two countries joining the forces inside NATO that will argue in favor of that. I think, uh, or we shouldn't say this these days before the French elections, but I mean, I think a part of the strategic autonomy discussion will slightly fade or will have to be rephrased Uh, to take this into account. You will have a stronger European pillar inside NATO. And a stronger coordination between that one and NATO. I I think there's a lot of thinking and policy development that opens up in this policy space in the next few years as a consequence not only of sort of Sweden, Finland, joining NATO, important as that is to Alex and myself, but as a consequence of the broader development that we see these very months.
1: Yeah, and I think this
2: illustrates really well the
1: sort of colossal strategic blunder, basically, that. That, that Putin made, you know, I've I've never seen a European Union more unified than what it is right now and the rejuvenation of the transatlantic partnership and sort of the, the, the going back to the roots of the purpose of NATO. And, and as a bonus, you get, you know, Finland and Sweden joining NATO in this system. So, you know, he, he got all of the stuff that he really didn't
0: want. And what do you think um, it means for um, the idea of NATO as a as a sort of political community? Because that's been one of the other elements where NATO's been sort of underperforming, I suppose. It's become more of a toolkit which different people have been have been using. Do you think that the fact that the UK uh, is there might mean that the political side of NATO could be reinvented in a post-Brexit context? I hope so, right? I mean, you
1: know, taking aside the... Domestic challenges that the British government uh, has at the moment, as as Carl would say, which are uh, not insignificant, put diplomatically. Uh, I think we should give a lot of credi- credibility to the UK for the way in which they've been dealing with the Ukraine situation in 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 general, uh, sending of arms. You know, even Johnson going to Kiev. These are big messages, and, and we've seen some sort of unity in the midst of Brexit disunity between the EU countries as well. but a lot of it will have to do with how close will France allow the UK to come. Uh, and, and uh, that's going to be the relationship that probably defines a little bit the political aspects of NATO, especially the European pillar. And then of course, the US elections in a couple of years are going to be quite important in determining the sort of political element. Uh, of NATO. But, you know, if and when Russia will continue in this state, this will mean that NATO has a completely new purpose. And this could be a really interesting new way of starting to integrate the UK and the US back into Europe.
2: I agree with all of that. I've I've just said that EU will also be extremely important. EU will have to deal with a fairly difficult issue, and that is the Ukraine membership application. We have the Eastern Partnership that has served its purpose, but it needs to be redesigned in a fairly fundamental way. We have the Ukrainians and the Moldovans and the Georgians applying for membership, at least in terms of Ukraine and and Moldova, I think they have to be brought along to something that starts approaching membership. And I think that will be also fundamental to the future security. I I think it's unlikely that Ukraine is going to end up in NATO. Uh, The European role in rebuilding, in strengthening, even in defending Ukraine, is going to be fairly important. Yeah, the
1: the way in which I try to put it is, so we have sort of split, right? On one side, you have an authoritarian, totalitarian, revisionist, imperialistic Russia. And on the other side, you have about 40 European democracies who have variable memberships in the EU and in NATO. And that's why I think from a sort of political, strategic perspective, EU enlargement is back. You know, it, it was sort of withering away, but now we start looking at the Western Balkans and we start looking at Moldova and
0: Georgia and and, and Ukraine. And I I think it's super interesting. Um, Just as we're coming to the end of our time here, but one thing which we um, maybe should reflect on a bit though, is you were both quite blasé about the dangers of, of Russia, um, uh, you know, taking serious moves uh, as a countermeasure against the declarations of intent. But The war in Ukraine has entered a new phase now, uh, a much more deadly and a dangerous one. And I think one of two things is likely to happen. Either the regrouping of Russian forces will work. They will decisively take the Donbass region and then use that as a base maybe to systematically go and flatten and destroy Ukrainian resistance in in a number of, of other cities or else. Um, it fails and they get pushed back and Putin will be in a terrible situation where he will want to to find ways of of not losing. (laughs) And that's where people are talking about horrible cycles of escalation taking place. Um, That's likely to be happening just as the NATO discussion is reaching its head in your respective countries. Are, Are you not worried that, if Putin is looking for ways of escalating because he's bogged down in the Donbass and his his offensive is not working, that he might use this as an excuse for something quite scary.
2: I, th- I think you're right. He's uh, going to face some critical decisions on what to do. I think it's rather going to be something else, which scares me. I mean, I made the comparison with Hitler in September 1939. Uh, you remember of. Our- Sometime into that particular war, it turned out to be somewhat more complicated also for Hitler. And I think it was Goebbels who made the famous speech in uh, the Sporthalle in Berlin, asking the German people, are you ready for a total war? That is total mobilization of all of the resources of the German nation to win this particular war, because he couldn't win it with what he'd planned. And that's sort of the decision that Putin will have to take so far. It's been called a special military operation. He has, formally speaking, not called up reserves. Formally speaking, not mobilized. Uh, Will he say to the Russian people, we are now at war? Are you ready for total war? Make a Goebbels-like speech of the same sort and try to mobilize everything that the Russian nation, 140 million people can mobilize in order to win in Ukraine. He will have to take that decision at some point in time. And what will be the consequence of that? Consequence of that could be the collapse of Ukraine, consequence of that could be the collapse of Russia, and consequence of that could be a wider war for all of us. So I think that particular issue which is coming up or question that's coming up is far wi- wider than just what is in the domain of Alex and myself.
1: Yeah, and I think Carl is right. I mean, it's a bit of a scary analysis, but it's a true one. And I, I think to say that we're blasé is probably wrong. Um, you know, we're not place we we're very conscious of what might happen, but we just don't think it's going to happen.
0: All right. Uh, we've run out of time for, for this fascinating discussion now, but there is one thing left to do on this podcast, and that's our bookshelf segment. Um, Alex, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Okay, well, I'm going to go
1: a little bit outside the box on on this one. Uh, and I'm actually going to suggest people to read Väine Linnas, The Unknown Soldier. Uh, and this is basically a story about uh, Finnish soldiers in World War II, and especially the Winter War. Uh, my mother-in-law has read it in English. It's slightly complicated because a lot of the language is actually about heavy accent, But it's uh, worth reading about, uh, you know, Finnish soldiers
0: with a Brahmi accent. Fantastic. What about you, Carl?
2: And there's also a film version of it, uh, Alex, which is fantastic.
0: No, I'm reading
2: somewhat different. I'm reading A New History of Ravenna. For the first European city, sort of that interesting interim period when you have sort of the decaying Roman or West Roman Empire, the influence of Constantinople, the different peoples coming in, the goats and the Lombards, the theological disputes in the Christian churches. So it's slightly different. Uh, not everything of it is relevant to what we are confronted with at the moment, but uh, some things are.
0: Great. And I've just started reading a very polemical book called The New Age of Empire, How Racism and Colonialism Still Rule the World by Kahinda Andrews, which is uh, quite a, a lively provocation um, that challenges the idea that many people have that the success of the West was rooted in in science, in industry, unique uh, liberal politics. Instead, it, it traces... A lot of the success of the West to a combination of of slavery, genocide, and colonialism. Um, it's quite an interesting uh book to be reading at the moment because it it shows why a lot of the claims to moral leadership which we in the West have are uh, maybe being met with some skepticism in other parts of the world. It's kind of interesting. Um corrective to 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 some of the solipsism of of, uh, of western debates anyway it's been absolutely wonderful talking to the two of you maybe next time we we get you back on the podcast your countries will be in in um in nato so we uh, we can come and, and talk about that and maybe explore whether it's time for for nato to have a, a swedish or a, a finnish former prime minister as its secretary general now that it's run out of norwegian ones But anyway, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do subscribe to it on whatever platform you're using to listen to it on and do while you're there, feel free to give us a positive review and a five-star rating because it really helps other people find the podcast. We'll put links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu. But for now, from Carl Bill, Alex Stubb, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. Hope that you have a speedy recovery from, from COVID, Alex. Uh, we're all rooting for you. The researcher of this podcast is Lucy Halpenthal, and the editor of this episode is Leonie Muller.